Do you ever see those clickbait lists online? They're usually titled 101 Films You Have to See Before You Die. They pop up every once in a while. But tell the truth. How many of them have you actually seen? These are movies so ingrained in the fabric of modern pop culture that you'd be forgiven for thinking that you had actually seen them. So join me, Sam Wraith. And me, Joel Green, as each week we break down and review these films from zany cult classics to what many describe as cinematic masterpieces. This is 1001 Movies We Have Not Seen. Hello and welcome to another episode of the 1001 Movies We Have Not Seen podcast. My name is Sam, a self-confessed cinephile who currently works in the film and television industry. I even went to university to study film and TV. The only issue is, I've not seen many films. My name's Joel. I don't work in the film industry at all. However, I enjoy film and TV a lot. I do have pretty strong opinions when it comes to both film and TV, which often my friend group disagree with. However... I always think I'm pretty justified in my opinions, so see what you think. Each week, myself and Joel will discuss a film that is described by many as one of the best films ever made. Do these films deserve the legacy they've been given, or are they just overrated and bloated rubbish? Let's find out, as this week we discuss 2001 A Space Odyssey. So how have you been this week? What have you been watching? Have you been too busy with work? I have been rushed off my feet with work. I, apart from this film, this is the only piece of media content outside of TikTok and Instagram reels that I have seen. Poor little Sam. Rushed off my feet. So you need to to watch the new series of Happy Valley on BBC. It's been on my list for a long, long time. Um, I've just never got around to it. But I'm one of those people who... And it's not it's not the best thing for content that I enjoy. I wait till it's all out until I watch it. Um, but I know that is not right. And... I used to. I well, you know, I used to because I used to hold up the group chat mm. and just want to binge it, binge it all out. But recently, I have been enjoying more just reverting away from that Netflix style of watching, so you can actually discuss each episode. Yeah, I absorb media a lot better week to week. Um, and something I've actually sort of found out with this podcast is I like to have a few days after we've we've watched the film before we before we talk about it because it sort of lets me I find myself thinking about it at random times. Um, oh, I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. Do you want to get it I, out I, all well, at once? You, well, you know, because you always watch it before I do. I watch it. I watch it. I watched it last night at like seven o'clock at night. Yeah, I watched so it's it as fresh as possible. I watched it two days ago, and. There were so many times when I wanted to message you about it, and I was like, "No, save it for the podcast, save it for the podcast," because it's content at the end of the day. And I really wanted you to have an unfiltered, unresearched sort of view on this going in, because yeah, there was no warning whatsoever. <laughs> I was like, "It's <laughs> going in cold. I can't give him anything going into this film." So, so started on the film, two thousand one, Space Odyssey. I thought it was about the space landing and like Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Did you actually? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. The first like half an hour, I was like, have I got the right book? Starting with the first three minutes, it's just black screen <laughs> with some orchestra music on. I was like, firstly, is 
YouTube movie's broken. What's going on? Secondly, why am I sat here? Look, don't get me wrong, the music was nice, but it's a Sunday evening. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what a, what a great place to begin. Um, but we are, the first thing we are introduced to is the score, um, which is iconic. I knew quite a lot of this score going in, and I think you know that because it's it's classical music and it's quite famous classical music. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote down in my notes... I don't know um, if if this version is broken that I'm watching, but I'm three minutes in and I haven't seen anything yet. I've heard a lot, but I haven't seen anything. I was like, "What is happening?" <laughs> and then <laughs> and then it's finally interrupted with the MGM logo, and I was like, "That was that was the logos. That was the three minute hype up to one logo. What am I about to watch? Oh my god." I mean, once we finally get past that three-minute hype up to the logo, then the score really kicks in. And, I mean, that's an iconic song, isn't it? The thing is, and I'm starting early this week, <laughs> <laughs> in my bad opinions, the thing is, I've heard that piece many times now, and it almost felt like a parody it being used seriously. Yeah, this is the original... I found it jarring. The original use of it now... It doesn't have the impact because it has been parodied. It has been referenced so many times because this, I mean, this film came out in 1968. This is an old film. This film five years ago celebrated its 50th anniversary. I think I should preface this as well. I am watching it now. So I am, when I watch movies, there's no little asterisk saying good for the time. Or I enjoyed it for the time period it was made in. A, a, a brilliant movie, it doesn't matter when it was made. It's brilliant. Brilliant stories, brilliant direction, brilliant acting. So when, when people say, when you take into consideration when it was made, it's brilliant. No, I'm, not I'm not having that at all. I am going to review it as if it was made today. I I I agree with you to a to a, a certain degree. I think there is, there is a little bit of wiggle room there. Um uh, because the movies that we know today are only made the way they're made because of the way these films lay the groundwork for them, if that makes sense. Um it But I have two and a half hours of my life. Those two every minute counts, mate. Yeah. This it looks nice. Those opening oh, shots film. of space, considering they were oh, yeah. they were made in in 1968, I am very. No, impressed. I'm not considering they're made in 1968. In general, in general, this is a very <laughs> the, the the shots were nice. This yeah, is a yeah. very nice looking film with Strauss's. I'm not even going to attempt to say. In fact, no, I am. I am going to attempt to say say the piece. Also, Spratt Zathrasta by Strauss. Yeah, no idea what that means. That is the piece yeah. of music that is going on. Oh, is that the music? This open scene. This, that is the composition. Is that the correct word? Um, I loved it. Um, the space shots look great. Um, this film looks amazing. That is one of the first things I was like, this looks amazing and it sounds amazing. So we, we get into the movie itself after our little wait. Basically, we have this whole like mini section which quite frankly could have been condensed into two minutes 
So we open in prehistoric times, a tribe of, of early humans, um, hominins, if you will, is driven away from its watering hole by a rival tribe. The next day, they find an, an alien monolith that has appeared in their midst. They then learn how to use bone as a weapon, and after their first hunt, return to drive their rivals away. It's incredible that you've managed to sum that up in 30 seconds. And it's also incredible how the movie maker manages to tell that story in half an hour. Half an hour. It's a short film in itself. What? No, no words, nothing. The whole first 30 minutes are just homo sapien monkeys screeching at each other. This is a wild film to watch for the first time. And... <laughs> not know what you're going into i i i would describe it as a slog i i knew of this scene i've seen it maybe referenced to and like a homage to in other projects um most most recently uh the barbie trailer um right the the, the first trailer for greta gerwig's 2023 film barbie um, recreates this scene um, however they do it in two minutes and they get every single beat down that is explained in these 28 minutes down to two minutes and I think they did it better yeah. <laughs> it's tight <laughs> you get everything there's no lingering shots like I mean I've never felt so much like why am I here at the start of a film as this, because usually establishing shots are exciting and everything. And I was trying to make notes for the podcast and I've got my notes here. They, they consist of, um, is it working? <laughs> start off. Is that a real leopard attacking a bloke in a gorilla costume? <laughs> I have the same question. And then I have, Fear of human-like creatures. Was that a real leopard attacking a man in a costume? Like, <laughs> I think it, it was. Looks and it brutal. looks sketchy. Because, I mean, <laughs> this is 1968. There's a lot less rules for people making films. So I yeah. think they just chucked a man in a, in a costume and let a leopard at him. It didn't look like... It didn't look like he even had much padding or right, anything. That, that looks like a. I mean, it, they look like cheap costumes. Do you know what I mean? This didn't seem. It, it didn't. Look they, they were men in costumes, and there was the, no the way sh- about it. The like framing of the cinematography and everything looked good. The actual costumes and like acting was questionable. Uh, there was real monkeys in there. Did you see? I saw a few times baby yeah, like the monkeys. baby monkeys and stuff. Who could act better than the men in in costumes? Maybe because they are monkeys. Um, yeah, I mean that's very method acting. Mm. Um, I also don't know if you noticed uh, what one of them was. Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> it was his first acting role, actually. Um, yeah, the baby baby, baby monkey. monkeys, very very method. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed what we got right at the beginning, um, just after after the space shots, subtitles telling us where we were and when we were. Oh, yeah. Which was one yeah. of my biggest problems with The Godfather. This film that came out five years before it was doing it. So Move on, mate. Move I, I on. would like to, Move to on. question. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I said at the time... It did, it did show us passing the time quite well. It did very well. It did. My other thing was, 
did you find it a bit creepy? You know that uncanny valley yes. of slightly human-like things doing things? For some reason, I just found it a bit, ugh, a bit yuck. I wonder if, if in real life, because these are meant to be our ancestors, I wonder if we did go back in time, we would maybe get uncanny valley because they look just human enough where they are us but they're still monkey-like. Because I don't look at a monkey and go, ooh, Uncanny Valley, that's that's creepy. No. But these were, I think they were subtly more human than monkey. Is that is that weird skinny long legs? Skin. Actual human legs because it's blokes in costumes. <laughs> they're humans in monkey costumes, aren't they? Which... In Toys R Us costumes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's at this point I looked down at my notes and I wrote, what is happening? I'm 15 minutes in question mark <laughs> yeah i i looked at my clock quite a lot this time jolly's currently showing me a note that's, that's the exact same thing <laughs> this is great um, so we've we've discussed the monkeys the, the the early humans um all of a sudden the obelisk or the 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 monument what what would you monolith, monolith i think is is the official word um I wrote, teaches them the knowledge to produce weapons, question mark. First yeah. murder, question mark. It just doesn't prepare you for it appearing, does it? It's like monkeys, monkeys live in, monkeys live in. Oh, weird, weird alien object. It was also kind of creepy, wasn't it? It unnerving. It definitely. I, I think I, it, that was due to like the sound of the yeah, music. Yeah, the though. score really accompanied it well. Um and the music was almost quite similar to that of the... I had sort of flashbacks to 15 minutes earlier with the three minutes pre, pre-logo, pre sort of that creepy music. And, I mean, I wrote down... I went back and I wrote down, is is my TV meant to be meant to be a monolith? Because all of a sudden I'm looking at this imposing sort of black square in my room with weird music coming out of it and i sort of got some comparisons to to the monoliths in the in the in the film so we we see one of the monkeys kill the other monkey um, and in celebration throws the bone up in the air and it quite nicely cuts to a shot of a spaceship in space sort of which I liked the sort of juxtaposition between this is what I would describe as the first piece of technology cut straight to this universe's most modern piece of technology. <laughs> but I liked I liked the symbolism of the, the, the bone to the, the spaceship. So we are now millions of years later. Dr. Hayward Floyd, chairman of the United States National Council of Astronautics, travels to Clavius Base, an American lunar outpost. During a stopover on Space Station 5, he meets Russian scientists who are concerned that Clavius seems to be unresponsive. He refuses to discuss rumours of an epidemic at the base. So, straight into another iconic song, The Blue Danube by John Strauss II. Again, I think I agree with your your first point that this music has been used so much in other projects i think it's sort of lost its its meaning but i did really like sort of seeing it in its original context that everything else has sort of copied it from the practical miniatures 
of the the ships floating through space, cutting with the music, that sort of weightlessness feel. Um, I loved when we cut into the the space plane. I think we call it um, the practical mm-hmm. effects of the, the pen floating, which I think is just done on a little bit of fishing wire. Um, and we get the actress sort of doing her best Shuffle. job, <laughs> shuffling uh, with her grip shoes. <laughs> right. So some of the acting in this film. I'm glad you pointed that up because that comes up a few more times. I'm, the acting in this film is questionable at times. Atrocious. So, so we're now in 2001, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, this is, uh, as the title may suggest, we are in the year 2001. So it's the most 60s 2001 you've yep. ever seen. I love the aesthetic uh, of this, though. And we have this lovely establishing scene with this doctor calling his daughter in a video phone it is the most formal talk to a child you have ever seen it's like hello daughter how are you father i am fine this <laughs> little girl is definitely reading her lines off big cue cards just off camera it's like <laughs> yes i can pass a message on to to mother who is not here right now it's like well who's looking after you it's like the nanny <laughs> The nanny is looking after me, father. It's like, oh, like, is this this child a robot? It's what rough acting have we got? I loved this sixties aesthetic version of the future, though. Uh, like the fact that there's there's still flight attendants. There's an elaborate. Hat. Yeah, the yeah. the plane is Pan Am, which went bankrupt in like the eighties. Like, who saw that come in? <laughs> <laughs> All the computers at IBM, like IBM, is still massive. They're still massive, but not. They're not making. Not as, they're not branding. Yeah, they're not everything. branding like they used to. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, like the the scale of some of these sets that they were on, and like the curved sets that you see, sort of the actors walking down physically. They loved a curved oh, shot. Loved they loved a curved shot. shot. They worked out how to do that, and they bit it in every chance they got. So this is where it would look like uh, an actor was walking on the side of the wall or something. But it was always in like circles, like hamster wheels. So there's little hamster wheels all over the set. And they would do it really slowly. Like, imagine everyone doing every possible movement as slowly and deliberately as possible. And that would be the actors in this film. Yeah. Um... Well, these were these were physical sets. Um, I don't know if you know that these were these were really rotating sets. More well known these days as sort of the Inception sets, with the whole yeah the whole set is sort of rigged on a giant hamster wheel that can rotate. Um, and I think that is that is fully where Inception got the idea from. Um, mm. But it really means that the actors can can interact with this with this set and it is constantly changing um because we get we get the establishing shots from outside this station is constantly spinning um to create sort of artificial gravity so they have to keep walking <laughs> <Is> that <laughs> god you'd, you'd be knackered wouldn't you <laughs> yeah so like they went to town on these sets but then extras nah oh don't bother. How many... like that all, all the sets are empty. How many chairs? I think you could count on people? one hand how many physical actors are in this film, not including the monkeys. 
But it's like, yeah, it's like seven. But there's seating for 50. There's probably seating for... And we're seeing a very small part of this space station. Where is everyone? Is this just sort of a... Is it a layover station? Because those people... Where is everyone in this? It's a very not populated universe. More my question is, why did they make these sets so bloody big when they don't have the actors to fill them anyway? I think going back in time, cameras were quite big in the 60s. So I don't think maybe you could have quite tight, especially the scale that they needed for... Because everything was bigger in the in the 60s. You know what I mean? I can't imagine the mechanics that are behind making those like sets rotate. They must have had to have been huge. They must have been entire sound stages that were just rotating. Um, and to get the cameras in there, like there's there's a few shots where the camera's fixed and you're seeing the set rotate around it. I think to do that, they need quite a lot of space. Um, but I, I appreciated the scale. It would have just been nice to have more people in the background. I mean, I also, I love that this was filmed and released sort of at the height of the space race. Um, it, I think it really tapped into what audiences were excited about. Um, and it's actually, it was made one year before Kubrick's next film, The Moon Landing. So oh. I now understand. Well, I, yeah. To be fair, I saw a lot of the, a lot of the shots and the scenes and stuff and thought, at the time, this must have been amazing. But now that we've seen that it isn't the case and that's not how things work, it it comes across as semi silly. But I think I think they got quite a lot right. Like pens and stuff do float because they will have consulted. We had sent people to to space at this point. We hadn't landed on the moon. That was that was the next year when Kubrick faked it in a studio, um, <laughs> which I now understand that theory after seeing this film i could understand people seeing that and then a year later seeing the moon landing going not a chance nah they've yeah. got kubrick in he's if this is what they can do on film there's no way we're actually on the moon what i will say is their opinion of the future is so inefficient oh as was everything in the 60s and everything that happens takes one to two minutes as well which makes watching it borderline painful, where you go, oh, this must have been cool at the time. Now it's just really, really slow. It's really like Kubrick was trying to get his money's worth out of these sort of miniatures of these sets. Everything is so drawn out. It's. I think there is such a tightly edited version of this film. That yeah, it's 10 minutes. That I might <laughs> enjoy I mean, we'll get to it, but I think we're currently in a, the second short film of this motion picture. Um, so it's at this point, I looked at my watch again, and I was an hour in. Is this going to start making sense? Question mark. The plot seems to now be kicking in. <laughs> yeah. What is the plot? What are we doing here? Yeah. All of a sudden, and why is everything moving so I'm slow? Getting, I'm getting these hints now. I'm like, oh, we're going to a planet where maybe there's been an outbreak. This is, we're in space. So that's, that's positive. At Clavius, Haywood addresses a meeting of personnel to whom he stresses the need for secrecy regarding their newest discovery. His mission is to investigate a recently found artifact. 
a monolith buried four million years earlier near the lunar crater. As he and the others examine the object, it's struck by sunlight upon which it emits a high-powered radio signal. 18 months later, the American spacecraft Discovery 1 is bound for Jupiter, with mission pilots and scientist Dr. David Bowman, also known as Dave, along with Dr. Frank Poole, on board along with three other scientists in suspended animation. Most of Discovery's operations are controlled by HAL, a HAL 9000 computer with a human personality. So it's starting with the scientist who comes and does the speech to all those other scientists. They basically say that there's a big cover-up and then he gives a speech saying, well, we have to stick to the cover-up. I find it unpleasant too. However, you're doing God's work in America. Yes. Good, 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 good. And then we spend the next 10 minutes of uh, the other scientists saying, telling him how good his speech was and how motivating his speech was. And where I really questioned if we had watched the same speech. Yeah, it for a, for a movie that shows you so many random, mundane parts of a conversation, I'm like, if this speech was so good, show it us. Show us the rest of this speech that these guys were clearly listening to that makes it one of the best speeches ever. Because if you're going to dedicate time to telling us how good the speech was, just show us the speech. And then we get to the then we get to the black monolith again. So it's a new one on the moon. Yeah, that's as much as I know. Yeah, buried beneath the surface of the moon. The second time we've met a monolith, and we're over an hour into uh, this film. So the first time they that humans meet a monolith is the one on Earth, and that gives them the ability to use tools. So I was thinking, okay, so this is going to, it's in 2001, it's set in the future. This is going to give them the ability to do something else. Like the next stage in evolution. Instead, it just kind of screeches at them and then we cut to black. Yeah. And it is not... Zero explanation. Not explained in the film. People have theorised that this is the monolith has been discovered and it's sort of the next humans have evolved to a point where they're now colonizing space so the monoliths or the aliens who have put the monoliths there um that high-powered screech is sort of it's it signaling the aliens that humans have now evolved to a point where they now colonize in space and are now ready for the next step question mark so then we get into like the the meat of the movie yeah we're, I, th I would say we're finally introduced to our main character almost an hour and a half into the film so dave and frank so they're two engineers they've got three other scientists in cryo sleep waiting to get to jupiter to probably find another monolith um, yeah they have they, they have deduced that the monolith sent a signal to jupiter so now 18 months later they are going to investigate so then we have a lot of conversation we have like a news broadcast about them going on the trip we see them eat some food we see them do some drawings we see them slowly walk around the admittedly impressive set for like 15 minutes then they have a conversation. This 
feels like the opening of the film. I could confidently say you could disregard literally everything that has come before this scene and you could open here because they explain they explain the what the ship is where it's going you don't need to know that the monoliths were there really you know that they're investigating something on jupiter nice set up how did it take an hour and 15 minutes to get into this because it also that there's a whole bit where they basically have a battle with hal 9000 the computer that cannot make a mistake where hal deduces that human error is the problem and he has to remove all human error to have the perfect uh perfect trip so they kind of have a battle this is totally nothing to do with the rest of the plot the monoliths the hour and a half that happened before totally totally disjointed hey it was quite it was quite enjoyable i think it was the best bit of the movie Easily. this is i think what i thought the movie was um i knew very little about but i knew that visual of how i knew that 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 single red eye that looks out across you i knew do you know do you know where i knew it from where did you know it from? i've seen the recess version of this recess. when i was a child amazing i i reckon i did i had no idea that that this was that film I think I knew it, but sitting down to watch it, I'd forgotten it was this film until I saw Hal for the first time. And I went, oh, yeah, of course, that's this film. More subtitles. That helped me. I liked that. 18 months later, and I'm not letting it go. Why couldn't The Godfather do it? (laughs) Um, More rough acting. Uh, The Parents. Did you? That was. Were those two actors in the same room? I know. I felt like... I know. Well, like... Right, so throughout, Dave is kind of like our main character in these scenes. Dave has the same emotional range as Hal the computer. I think Hal's got more. (laughs) You're right, I think Hal, I was more emotionally connected to Hal the computer than I was to Dave. The emotionless husk that he was. So when Hal reports the imminent failure of an antenna control device, Dave retrieves it in his extra vehicular activity or EVA pod, but finds nothing wrong. Hal suggests reinstalling the device and letting it fail so the problem can be verified. Mission Control advises the astronauts that result from their twin 9000 computer indicates that Hal has made an error, but Hal blames it on human error. Concerned about Hal's behaviour, Dave and Frank enter an EVA pod so they can talk without Hal overhearing. They agree to disconnect Hal if he's proven wrong, but Hal follows their conversation by lip-reading. While Frank is outside the ship replacing the antenna unit, Hal takes control of his pod, setting him adrift. Dave takes another pod to rescue Frank. While he's outside, Hal turns off the life support functions of the crewmen suspended in animation, killing them all. When Dave returns to the ship with Frank's body, Hal refuses to let them back in, stating that their plan is to deactivate him and it jeopardises their mission. So Frank Frank is spiralling out to space. Dave, like a cardboard cutout of a human being, gets back in his pod and chases after him. One, he goes back in the pod where Hal, who he suspects is against him, Still can take control of the pod. Yeah, I mean, why doesn't Hal just kill Dave? 
Yeah. It's has Hal not got control of the ship enough to fly it? Does Hal he still need every element of it? Does he still at some point need the human aspect though? Is there some kind of because this isn't a world where AI control literally everything. It's a world very close to that. But there are still safeguards in place, I feel, that means Hal can't have full control. Also, those EVA pods. My God, are they the slowest thing in the world to get into? <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Frank is dead. Okay. Hal, turn the pod around. It's like, I think if he's dead, mate, he's... he's gone isn't he there's no suspense there's no action in this film and maybe it's before action you could have made it suspenseful if this can you imagine if this movie was remade today my god the explosions the speed dave then releases frank's body and despite not having a spacesuit helmet exits his pod crosses the vacuum and opens the ship's emergency airlock manually he goes to Hal's processor core and begins disconnecting Hal's circuits, despite Hal begging him not to. When the disconnection is complete, a pre-recorded video of Haywood plays, revealing that the mission's objective is to investigate the radio signal sent from the monolith to Jupiter. It looked good, didn't it? That whole sort of sequence of him floating into Hal's main hard drive. Yeah, yeah it was a cool set. It's a cool set, but my my the note I have written down is: Are we going to watch him turn the little screw on every single one every of those light bars? Single, <laughs> there were so many light bars. There was upwards of ten, and I think it took about twenty seconds for one to fully come out. Um, but then I think I think the whole point of that is so you can you can hear Hal as he slowly shuts down. He begs for his life, and he slowly loses control of his memories functions visually and aesthetically i'm loving watching this but (laughs) what is the plot i just i'm so lost i'm like cool you shut down the shut down how that's that's it isn't it that's the end he's safe mission failed turn around you've lost all the scientists his job wasn't to get to Jupiter and get to the monolith. His job was to get the scientists to Jupiter. But he carries on for some reason. He carries on. So at Jupiter, Dave finds a third, much larger monolith orbiting the planet. He leaves Discovery in an EVA pod to investigate. He is then pulled into a vortex of coloured lights and observes bizarre cosmological phenomenon and strange landscapes of unusual colours as he passes by. So I looked down at my notes to see what I'd written. Not got a Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I'm getting serious end of Interstellar vibes here. That It now seems straight up ripped off 2001. Christopher Nolan stole the ending of his film from another film. Like I don't think there's a homage. It's very, very similar. Do you know what the worst bit of Interstellar is? The ending. The ending. <laughs> what everyone complains about the ending the ending um i mean we'll get to it i think the ending of interstellar makes more sense yeah (laughs) finally dave lands and finds himself in a large neoclassical bedroom where he sees and then becomes older versions of himself 
first standing in the bedroom, middle-aged, still in his spacesuit, then dressed in leisure attire and eating dinner, and finally as an old man lying in bed. A monolith appears at the foot of the bed, and as Dave reaches for it, he is transformed into a fetus enclosed in a translucent orb of light floating in space above the Earth. God, I wish I'd made that last bit up. Yeah. What? At, at this point, it just goes full fever dream. What is this final act? I thought I'd seen some pretty rogue movies. How was this mainstream? I know they took a lot of drugs in the 60s. <laughs> and I think every person who took drugs made this film. What on earth? Uh, I have a note here saying I was too sober for this. Yeah. Dry January has done me dirty. I don't, I don't. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. This is a mainstream big film. People walked out that cinema going, what an ending, surely. People for it to had, do so well. People had like religious awakenings to this film in the cinema. What? This, this film like broke people. I don't know what on earth people saw in this. But it, I didn't get it. And I get it. I get it looks nice. But come on. Such a strange... I, I think we should just leave it on that. No, as well, for telling you about the story. Because it makes no sense. And I, I, Genuinely, there's no real discussion for me. It just doesn't make sense. Are they different versions of him? I don't know, mate. At different points in his I life? I don't have it. You you told me to not do any research for this one. Yeah, uh, because I, I wanted great shout because I don't want to know. You do not want to know because I know I've got an answer for you. Ugh, I've got Kubrick's fine. answer. It took fine. him a few years to give it. Um, so it's, it's like the spinning top in Inception. No, the spinning top in Inception makes more sense than this. I feel <laughs> yeah. because get ready because apparently <laughs> I just. I had so much written down, and I just... I'm never going to get that image of a giant floating baby flying through space out of my head. What? How can that be the final shot of a film? I mean, I'll put it down. It can go on a list of the most iconic endings ever that you're never going to forget in your life. So Kubrick has said, after Dave goes through a space and time portal, that he's taken into a, an almost human-like zoo by these godlike entities... And after they study Dave's life at an accelerated rate, trigger the next form of human evolution, which just for some reason happens to be a giant baby floating through space. So there's... I know a lot of films these days have the negative point of treating the audience like an idiot. There is such thing as giving the audience a bit too much subtext and a bit too much credit, because... I just came out of that going, that was weird. Let's move on. I agree. What? My brain, thinking back on it, has melted. I really... I wouldn't say I really liked it. I didn't really like it. <laughs> I thought it had saved itself with... I thought, oh, okay, it's taken a while. Do you know what I mean? It showed us 20, 28 minutes of monkeys. It... Spent a long time setting up the film, but 
Do you know what I mean? We're, we're getting somewhere now. We're, we're on HAL 9000. I like this sort of... This is a good... It's it's not well executed, but it's it's an interesting-ish plot. It's a, it's a computer gone rogue. It's killing the crew. And then the film carries on. How do we... How do we... I, I'm literally lost for words. There is clearly levels of subtext that this film has not resonated with me on. People watched this film a lot. People had religious awakenings a lot. Spielberg went to watch this film so many times. James Cameron watched this film so many times. People had breakdowns in the cinema re-watching this film. They thought they were being sent a message from God. I just thought I was watching a naff film maybe, that I didn't understand. This film is meant to evoke an emotional response from the audience. That is what Kubrick wanted. The only response this has triggered from me is anger and confusion <laughs> that I have spent two hours In that order. and 19. I mean, I'm angry because I'm confused, but I'm confused because I'm angry. Do you know what I mean? I'm, it, yeah, they come yeah. out in hand. Why don't I understand this film? Am I an idiot? I'm sure people will, sure people will tell us that we're an idiot and we don't understand the subtext of this film, but it's not clear. Oh, to be fair, just for me, it was just boredom. At the end, I, I was so... Like, you know when you are bored at the start, you get annoyed that you're watching it, it's still going on then it gives you a little taste of hope with the hal plot but you're still going why are these scenes taking so long and then it just carried on by that point i was so checked out if it wasn't for the podcast i would not have carried on watching so score out of 10 one is this (laughs) 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 Give, give, give me a second give me a second is this better or worse than Reservoir Dogs? Worse. worse on every level. And give me your score out of 10. All right. This looked nice. I'll give it that it looked nice. And that was the only thing keeping me going, really. I was like, ooh, visually this is keeping me entertained. But mentally my brain is melting. Therefore, this film gets a 4 out of 10. A four out of ten. Four out of ten. I don't think okay. I can give it. I don't think I can give it fifty-fifty. I can't give it five out of ten. This film is more so, bad than it is good. Uh, so I'm going to give it a two out of ten. A two. I thought I was being harsh with my four. It was actively unpleasant to watch. The acting was abysmal, and the plot was non-existent. I feel this film is never going to give me closure. Yeah. This film is going to keep... It's going to be a little brain worm. Just when I think I've I've, I've put it behind me, my brain's going to go, oh, do, you remember, do you remember the end of 2001? What was that all about? So it's, I suppose the director uh, got what he wanted, really, didn't he? He got exactly... An emotional response. He got exactly <laughs> what he wanted. And Stanley Kubrick, I will applaud you for that. But I know we've got more of your films on this list. And I swear to God. (laughs) I'm scared, Joel. I'm scared for what is coming our way. 
so that leads us to what film are we watching next week? Do you want to do the honours? We are watching Psycho. Ooh. The first time ever. I don't I think either of us have seen this. I've not. I've seen one scene in particular maybe a few times, but I've never watched the whole film or know really what it's about. So is it me to do the outro? Please, come on. You can do this. I believe in you. We'll see you, giant space baby. Thank you very much for watching this episode of the 1001 Movies We Have Not Seen podcast. If you could leave us a comment and like this episode, it helps us out massively. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at 1001 Movies Not Seen Pod, or you can send us an email at 1001 Movies Not Seen at gmail.com. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you next week. Two hours and 19 minutes. I'm never getting back. A giant baby in space. <laughs> Uh. <laughs>